Olaso. This morning we will return to the practice of settling the mind in its natural state. We'll put all the pieces together. We've looked at the foreground, we've looked at the background, we've circled around looking at the different sense fields before honing in on the mental field. So during the session itself, there will be very few words. I think you're very familiar with the practice by now. Uh, Just to remind you, though, of a central theme of this practice, and that is that it is simultaneously a practice for knowing the mind. What better way to know it than to observe it? But simultaneously, and with the same method, of course, it's also a a method of, of healing the mind. But even saying that is a bit misleading. It would suggest that we're doing something to the mind to heal it. And we're not. Quite clearly, we're doing as little to the mind as we possibly can by simply attending to it without distraction, without grasping. We're adding no additives. We're not getting in there and doing anything to it. And so it's not so much that we are engaging in a practice to heal the mind, but rather we're engaging in a practice in which we do our very best to stop doing everything that prevents the mind from healing itself. So it's very passive. This relates, I think, to this broader framework that I've alluded to in the past of different modes of enlightened activity, of bodhisattva activity, of in Tibetan, Zhi Ge Wang Ta, of the peaceful or the pacifying, the enriching, the powerful, and the ferocious or wrathful or even violent. And among those four modes, this clearly fits into the first category. We're attending to the mind, but if we're doing this really as a spiritual practice. We're not looking at it with simply mere curiosity or cold objectivity, but in fact, as I hope you've all done this morning, already set your motivation so that when you venture into the practice, you're doing so in a very loving way, a very compassionate way for yourself, for those around you, but it's a very gentle and, again, a very caring entrance into the practice. And so in the very mood, the very motivation, the very entry into the practice, it is already peaceful and, and pacifying. The practice itself, of course, is just that. We're not adding any, anything to the mind. So it's a very peaceful approach to allowing the mind to heal. Now, it's quite clear to all of us, I think, especially the, the mental health care professionals here, such as, well, as we, we know who they are, um, that this is sometimes not sufficient. You may have clients who have pretty significant psychological problems. They may even have strong neuroses or maybe even psychoses. And if you simply say, here's the practice, this will do it, uh, well, it won't. In which case, something more is needed. And so, and I think there's a nice progression here. This is really the way it should. Maybe start there. If you already know it won't work, well, at least consider it and then carry on. But the next one is the enriching, the powerful, the enriching. And this is where, in a secular context, the therapist will then enrich the life, the understanding, the mind of the person who is psychologically troubled. Give them some wise counsel. Provide them with, in, with information, with knowledge, with wisdom, with methods, with perspective that they didn't have already. They can enrich them so that they are better equipped to deal with their psychological problems and find healing. So in a spiritual context, this, of course, is the role of the spiritual friend, the spiritual mentor, the guru, the lama, again, to enrich. That's why so many teachings are given. And this is a form of enrichment. In the Buddhist framework, this is the greatest gift that one person can give another, is the gift of dharma. So that's really information flow. Information flow. 
Now, on occasion, just the talk therapy or just providing information may not be sufficient. It may not be, it may, may not be enough. In which case, something more powerful may be needed. In the secular context, this is where you have a person whose psychological imbalance, psychological and perhaps there really is a very significant imbalance in brain chemistry or, or brain physiology. You come in with muscle, as in the example where, you know, the, the, the analogy of trying to get Noah to raise his arm. Sometimes it's necessary to come in with muscle, to give a person a drug that will subdue, that will manage, the, that will suppress the symptoms so that at least to get them under control, the person is not just totally inundated, overwhelmed by them. So bring in some muscle, bring in a chemical that will just basically wrestle the brain to the ground and say, down, <laughs> you know, so that we can pr provide something of enrichment and, and provide, you know, provide some information which otherwise just cannot be received. In the spiritual context, there are times, there are times, with, for those of us who have studied with lamas for a while, we know sometimes they can be very strong. They can be really, they can use their power, right? Their power of their presence, um, but that happens too. Sometimes that is necessary. And sometimes simply the exertion of power itself, whether by way of a drug or power of a person's presence, power of a person's words, that sometimes that's not sufficient either. And that's where the final shi ge wang, wang ge le, and then tak le. Then finally, ferocity, wrathfulness, or even violence. And that's when you bring out the sword, which in the medical profession is called a scalpel. And maybe some surgery is necessary. Or maybe something equally violent, maybe electric shock treatment. I don't know, but I think it's very violent. And so is that sometimes helpful? I don't know, I'm not a professional, but it certainly is violent. And so there are modes for that and there are in the spiritual context as well. Sometimes a mode of wrathfulness or ferocity is necessary. I've been the recipient of it on a few times by my very compassionate lamas and it's always been helpful. Very rare, but it's always been helpful. I felt really bad at the time and it was really helpful. And so, final footnote before we jump in, a friend of mine, a psychiatrist at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia, commented to me some years ago that a study was done, published in a medical journal way back in the 1980s, that was a study, I think it was done of treatment for depression, but I know it was for psychological problem, <coughs> I think depression. And they had three groups, and one received drugs, another group received talk therapy, and another group was simply received or had an engagement with a very compassionate therapist or friend or mentor or someone, a helper. But the primary thing was this person, it, it was experienced as this person is truly compassionate. That was the experience. And they did a comparative study. What's most effective? The drugs, the talk therapy, or simply having a compassionate, a compassionate friend, a mentor, somebody to talk to? Lo and behold, the compassion came on on top. That study has not been replicated as far as I know. There's not a whole lot of money in it. <laughs> and funding for research goes where the money is. Money breeds money. Um, so there we are. But in the contemplative traditions of the world, Christian, Buddhist, and so forth, this is an ancient truth.
that if you're to take on the role of being a spiritual mentor, you must have two qualities. Otherwise, just find another line of work. Your motivation must be altruism. It must be compassion. If it's not, then it's something other that's probably not so nice. And secondly, you should have more knowledge and or experience than those that you are guiding or trying to provide counsel for. If your mentor has those two qualities, then that actually is sufficient. It's nice if the person has more. But if the motivation is, is sound, and the person does indeed have greater knowledge and or experience, then that's enough. But we see that compassion really is an indispensable, indispensable ingredient. Okay, let's jump in. Now I've said my piece, <clears throat> both in terms of P-I-E-C-E and P-E-A-C-E. <clears throat> let's jump in with very few words now <coughs> to the practice of settling the mind in its natural state. <clears throat> with a loving and compassionate motivation to heal yourself and others. <clears throat> Gently let your awareness descend into the body, right down to the ground, filling the space of the body, and then settle your body in its natural state, your breathing in its natural rhythm, and calm and soothe your mind by way of mindfulness of breathing.
Then let your eyes be at least partially open, resting vacantly in the space in front of you. And direct the full force of your attention to the space of the mind and whatever arises within it. And whatever thoughts and other events arise, be they long or short, gentle or rough, pleasant or unpleasant, virtuous or non-virtuous. Just observe their nature, let them be, and sustain your mindfulness without distraction, without grasping, intermittently applying introspection to note the occurrence of laxity or excitation, and in response, arousing or releasing in order to balance your attention. Let's continue practicing now in silence.
Let's bring the session to a close. So in between sessions, let's try to maintain as much lucidity with respect to our own minds as possible, recognizing mental events as mental events and not confusing them for the reference of the mental events. In other words, not fall into a non-lucid dream while we're still awake. See you a bit later. <laughs>